such courage, Lord, is not natural. But we don't want to be natural people. We want to be supernatural people. Men and women and children who are led and controlled by the Spirit. So that when we do face incredible fear, Lord, when the loss of life is a reality and not just a possibility, that we could look into doom and say, it is well with my soul. We want to be such people. And I pray, God, that you would use this text to to help us cling to you alone. That you would not just be the foundation of our faith, you would be the foundation of all of our hope, all of our joy. So that we can say that there is no other rock but our God. And say that no matter what difficult experiences we're facing. Do that work in us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Our text for this afternoon is verses... 10 through 17. 10 through 15, excuse me. 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Recently, my sons have been asking me, multiple times actually, if I have ever taken the four-hour test. Which, what they're referring to when they ask that question is the SAT. And uh, the answer I gave them is yes, Boys, but it's hardly a glory story for me. Now, to give a context to that moment in my life, all throughout my grade school years, I took my test very seriously. I um, would strive to get straight A's and get 100% on my tests. And sometimes, even in grade school, I'd stay up late into the night just making sure I had all the information that I'd be tested on. But things changed a bit when I got into high school to the extent that the night before I took the SAT, I needed my parents to remind me that that's what I had to do the next day. I woke up, hardly ate anything, and simply showed up to take the test and went home, hardly taking it seriously, and it showed on the score that I got. 
I was obsessed about all these little tests that mattered about my future. And yet, the one that really did make a difference, of all the tests that I took in school, I didn't take it seriously at all. And we spend all our lives being tested. When we're in grade school, we get grammar tests, we get math tests, spelling tests. Later on, we have to take the PSAT, the SAT, the ACT, others. And then we get into graduate school and we have to take boards that we need to pass. In our jobs, we get quarterly assessments and we get annual assessments. We spend our whole lives getting tested. And yet, we are often not prepared for the one test that will really matter. The greatest test all of us will face will not be the SAT. It'll be the test that we face when we stand face to face with God on the day of judgment. When he tests all that we have done. And it's this test that Paul is referring to in this passage. And he brings it up so that we would be prepared. So that we would take it seriously. And that we would devote all of the rest of our lives in preparation for this test. That all that we do would be looking forward to that final day when he exposes all that we have invested in. Was it quality or was it worthless? And he does this by way of illustrating a building. In the previous verses, Paul described how really he and Apollos and any other servant was insignificant. As, even though they were apostles. That he understood he was just a servant of the Lord because it's God who's the one that gives the growth. And he does this by way of uh, describing that he is a, a worker in God's field and that the Corinthians were the field. He planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. And then he jumps from depicting the church as a field to depicting it as a building in order to illustrate a new point. Different point than what he had illustrated before. And the point he wants to make in this illustration is that we will all be tested according to the, the work we do in the construction of this building. And the building represents the church. What are we doing in our service to Christ? He says in verse 10, as he describes the foundation of our work. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul's first point is that the foundation is actually the most important part of the building. It's the most important part. He says in verse 11, Jesus Christ is the only foundation that this building can be built upon. He's it. And so people need to know the gospel because it doesn't matter how successful they are, how much money they make with their life, how popular they are, how many tests they pass. 
if their life is not built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, doesn't matter what they accomplish in their life, it will all be worthless unless they have Christ. That's the point. If they're outside of Christ, all of their investments are eternally worthless. So every person who has ever existed will be judged. But if they're lacking the foundation, obviously there's nothing that can there's nothing to build upon. There's nothing to assess. And so the most important step in a person's life is that they would submit themselves to Jesus Christ, that they would embrace the gospel. Because of outside of Christ, all that they will have is a fearful expectation of judgment. As the writer of Hebrew writes in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Jump to verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it's knowing this truth, knowing that one day every person will stand before the judgment seat of God that drives Paul to be so particular in his ministry to the Corinthians. Remember we saw earlier in the in uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 how Paul said he went out of his way to make certain that all he did was preach Christ and Him crucified. Because he wanted to make sure they understood that at least. Because if they don't understand Christ and Him crucified, there's no foundation. So it doesn't matter what else they know. It doesn't matter what else they understand from His teaching. If they don't have Christ, it's all worthless. And they will be consumed. They have to know this. And so Paul went out of his way to make that particularly clear. To the Corinthians. It was his attempt to lay a solid foundation. And he describes his effort in verse 10. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. In the Greek, the word is sophos architectone. A wise architect. Like a wise architect, Paul understood that unless this foundation was perfectly laid... The building isn't going to stand no matter how well it's built, no matter what kind of materials are invested in it, unless that foundation is laid, everything else is worthless. So if the foundation is Jesus Christ, what's the building? The answer is seen in verse 9. He's speaking about the development of the church. In particular, evangelism, laying the foundation, and then edification, seeing the church build itself up in love, Ephesians 4. So helping the church grow into maturity. So notice that is the work that is going to be tested on the day of judgment. How well have we invested in seeing that building get established and he's not talking about a church building again it's an, it's a metaphor how well have we invested in seeing 
the church come to maturity. Individuals grow into maturity in Christ, and then the church as a whole grow up into maturity in Christ. On the last day, nothing else will matter. All the worldly wisdom that the Corinthians so admired, that they so craved, even from Paul, they'll recognize as worthless. It'll be burnt up like a paper house. I love the poem written by C.T. Studd. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Paul notes in verse 10 that someone else is building upon the foundation that he laid. He laid the foundation and he says someone else now is building upon it. Well, who's this someone else? Well, maybe Apollos. He mentions Apollos later, that Apollos watered. But he leaves it open-ended. He doesn't say it's Apollos. He says it's someone else. Notice also that it's in the present tense. This person is building upon it currently. And given the situation in the church, it's doubtful that Apollos was still there ministering. Moreover, given the clear warning that we see in the next verse, the take care how he builds, it seems that the someone else is actually the recipients of the letter. It's the Corinthians themselves. He's telling the Corinthians they themselves need to take care how they're building the church in Corinth. Let each one take care how he builds. The Greek word for take care is blepo. And it, it's that word that, that means to examine carefully. Watch what you're doing. Like a careful builder who measures exact cuts. Maybe two or three times before he saws to make sure it's exactly how it needs to be. That these materials are cut according to their exact size. And it seems that Paul's point is that if the building fails to meet code, that it's going to be on the builder's not on the one who's laid the foundation. As he said, like a wise master builder, wise architect, I laid the foundation. I made sure the foundation was solid. So now, let the one who's building upon that foundation, namely you, Corinthians, make sure you're doing that building with care. Build carefully. The Corinthians need to make sure that they are therefore building with quality, which is what he addresses then in verse 12, the quality of the work. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, these materials are illustrative of the quality of one's ministry. And they're differentiated by both the relative value of each of these materials, as well as how well they're going to withstand the fire. And in fact, that seems to be the main emphasis. Gold, silver, precious stones will survive a fire. 
Wood, hay, and straw, not so well. So these gold, silver, and precious stones describe truly valuable ministry. That is, ministry that has a genuine spiritual impact. And then the worthless ministry by the others, that's ministry based upon man's wisdom, and that's performed for the glory that comes from man. So again, this quality ministry is demonstrated as gold, silver, and precious stones. So these represent the kind of work that will be able to pass God's judgment, pass and gain His approval. So what does such ministry look like? What does this work look like in our lives? Well, I'm going to give you a smattering of verses just so you see that how, this, how the Scripture lays this out. And there's probably even more that we could add. But first of all, quality work is dependent upon prayer. When we understand, as Paul has already said, that we can do nothing upon our own, that it's God who gives the increase, the natural, the natural consequence, the impact that's going to have on our life is we're going to pray we're going to realize that no spiritual growth can take place unless God takes place. And if we really get that, everything that we set our heart to, we're going to pray about. Because we recognize our work really isn't what's definitive, but God working through us. And so we're going to ask Him. And this is what Jesus wants us to do, as He says in John 15. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. And then the Father will be glorified and we will bear much fruit. Secondly, quality ministry accurately handles the Word of God. It teaches the Word accurately. And Paul has already made this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as he exalts the fact that we have been given the very depths of God to study. And that's where true power comes from in the ministry. From the Spirit in God's Word. He also tells uh, Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of Truth. So if he's not handling the Word of Truth well, he'll have reason to be ashamed, particularly on the last day. Thirdly, it's ministry that's driven by love. And the best chapter, of course, in this is 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says in verse 3, If I give away all that I have, think about that, just give away all that I have. If I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So if love is not driving us in our ministry, in our life, in our work, it will be consumed. It doesn't matter how well we taught that word of God. If it wasn't being driven by love, that'll be consumed. You gain nothing. If love is not what's motivating us in our ministry, in our work, we gain nothing. Fourthly, It should be driven by the glory of God, not the glory that comes from man. Peter writes this, 1 Peter 4.11, Whoever speaks 
as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So he's describing these various kinds of ministries, these gifts that have been given to the church. And he says, do this in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So the aim is not the applause of men and how tempting that can be. Even in, in how easily our motives get mixed because it does feel so good to have approval and applause from others. But that which is not done for the glory of God is not quality ministry. Fifthly, it, it's ministry that endures suffering. As Paul writes to Timothy again, he says, As for you, always be sober-minded Endure suffering. And do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Endure suffering. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul closes this letter, he speaks about the resurrection. And his final point that he makes in chapter 15 is he says in verse 58, Therefore, in light of the resurrection, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And his point there is, you may have to suffer, but knowing the resurrection's happening, know that your labor in the Lord is not empty. You will be rewarded for it, even if you have to suffer now, because resurrection's coming. So we should be encouraged by this. Right now, you might be suffering. Could be suffering from illness. Could be suffering from just the challenges of uh, life, in your families, in your work. Understand, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You will be rewarded for it. If this is what's driving you in your life, these five things, you will be rewarded for it. If you're dependent upon prayer, accurately handling the word of God and being driven by the word in your life. If you're driven by love, seeking the glory of God, not the glory that comes from man. If you endure suffering, it will not be wasted. Even if everybody else thinks your life is a waste. The Lord sees it and he'll honor you in that day. So take hope. So if this represents quality work, what does the wood, hay, and straw represent? Well, I think, again, given the context of 1 Corinthians, it's worldly wisdom. It's the thing that the, that the world glories in, that, really, that the world thinks is truly valuable. That's what the Corinthians were investing in. That's what they loved. It's this work that only has a temporal benefit. But there's no eternal impact. And it's work that's lacking in the qualities that we've already talked about. So it could be work that's driven by bad motives. Or work that is characterized by carelessness with the Word of God. Or manipulating the Word of God to defend our own desires and um, preferences. Or that's motivated to exalt ourselves. And so the point being is that a person can pursue religious work 
and at the same time not be serving Christ. They can be preaching. They can be um, parenting. They can be teaching a Sunday school class. They can be doing evangelism and thinking they're storing up this, this, this great reward and then find out because they weren't being driven completely by love, because they weren't handling the Word of God accurately, that it's all lost. But likewise, a person can be performing non-religious work and still be serving Christ. Consider Colossians 3.22. He writes to slaves. Paul writes to slaves and he says, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men. And catch this, verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So even in our service, if we're slaves, serving our masters, even then, because we're serving Christ, we really are about kingdom work and we will be rewarded on that day. So it's not limited to just ministry within the church walls, the church building's walls. And really, if you understand the nature of church work, everything we do is church work. All of our lives should be aimed at the growth of the church. We saw that last week when Paul says, both he who plants and he who waters are one. They have one purpose. If you're in the body of Christ, your one aim is to see this building get built and established. Consider this. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4. See, in Ephesians 4, Paul begins to talk about the purpose of the church. What, what, why God sent apostles and teachers. And he says this in verse 15. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, so Paul here in Ephesians 4 is saying this is the work of the church, to see the, the church build itself up in love. That's the work of ministry. That's this building that's being built. But notice where he goes later on. He begins to get specific. And he talks in uh, the rest of chapter 4 and part of chapter 5 about holy living. But then he gets really specific in Ephesians 5 and 6. What does this building up of the body look like in Ephesians 5 and 6? Consider these non-institutional ministries. He says in chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves again, in chapter 6, verse 5, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. 
Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. So this too is kingdom work. And I bring this up because it's easy to get distracted and think about how can you as an individual build up the body? What sort of ministry can you get involved in and forget these other non-institutional ministries? I mean, how many pastors have you heard who are well-known, they have these huge ministries, and yet their family is falling apart? So when you consider the quality of your work, as you examine the quality of your work in ministry, start here. How are you doing, wives, at submitting to your husbands? How are you doing, husbands, at loving your wife as Christ Love the church. Children, are you obeying your parents? Fathers, are you discipling your kids? Notice he gives us to the fathers, not just to the... Maybe by implication the mothers could catch this, but the responsibility is laid squarely on the shoulders of the fathers. Fathers, are you discipling your kids? Servants, are you serving your masters? By application, maybe... You could take that to your employment. Masters, those whom you oversee, how do you treat them? So again, don't limit your judgment to work inside a church because God won't. God is going to look at all of your life and examine your motives. Examine, does it line up with what my word says? Does it, is it done for the glory of God or for the glory of man? He's going to evaluate all of what you've done. Not just what's done within the confines of what we'd consider ministry. And really, again, rightly understood, your work outside the church, in your families, in your marketplace, or in the marketplace, sorry, is kingdom work. It is church work. This brings us to the third, Paul's third point, the judgment of our work, verses 13 through 15. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So again, what Paul is describing in these verses is the judgment that every person will undergo after they pass away. And it's described in picture, uh, theologians call it the, the judgment according to works. And it's spoken of throughout the Bible, this judgment. Even in the Old Testament it's spoken to. I was thinking of Ecclesiastes. The last phrase in Ecclesiastes is that, fear God, keep his commandments, knowing that the Lord will bring every act under judgment. So, again, in Romans 2.16, according to my gospel, notice what it's according to. According to the gospel, which tells you a lot about what the gospel speaks of. According to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
And so it's in anticipation of this judgment that, pri- that prompts Christ to warn his followers. He says in chapter 16, verse 26, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For if the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The judgment is going to happen. It's Paul speaking about this final day of judgment. And we know this because of the passages above, but also because of what's revealed in the text itself before us. Notice the repetition of the word fire. It's the word that's repeated again and again and again. And fire in Scripture is a metaphor for judgment. Almost exclusively, that's what it's referring to. Notice also the word revealed in verse 13. It's the word apocalypti, where we get the word apocalypse. So, you've heard of the apocalypse of John. It's the word revelation. It's what revel- so, re- it, it has this um, end of times view. That, that's what this word entails that. So, it's on the day of judgment that God will reveal the quality of each one's work. Now recognize, we're not going to understand the true quality of our work or other people's work. We'll get into judging other people's work uh, the next chapter. But we're not even going to know the quality of our work until that day. We take tests and examinations right now that kind of attest the, test the quality of our work. But it's on that day that the true quality of our work will be known. When all of what we have done will be tested by God. And that day will prove what was worth investing in. Whatever was not worth investing in will be consumed by fire and forgotten. Paul uses the word suffer loss. And whatever was faithfully invested in will be subsequently rewarded. And this this parallels what Jesus taught in the parable of the minas and the parable of the talents. According to the parable of the minas, you might recall, he who invested 10 minas wisely, which again is roughly about $200, was rewarded with 10 cities. He who invested his five minas wisely was rewarded with five cities. And the point of the parable of the minas is that whatever is invested for the kingdom's sake will be rewarded exponentially. Again, 10 minus, $200, and he gets 10 cities. 5 minus, $100, he invests, and he gets 5 cities. The point is, exponentially rewarded. Another story is told of a wealthy stockbroker who passed away, and he left $10 million for each of his three sons. And they were told that they could have all the money now. However, whatever they kept in the trust would multiply a hundred times its value in ten years. So they could take whatever they wanted immediately, but if they left it in the trust, whatever is there would multiply a hundred times its value. So the first son 
was fairly sanguine in character and he was so excited, he took it all out immediately. And after only 10 years, he had exhausted all of it. And the second son, he was a bit wiser and he wanted to honor his father's memory. And so he made sure that he left 10% of the money in the trust. He was a good tither. So even though he had spent 90% of the money after 10 years, he still earned $10 million from that which remained. Or, sorry, $100 million. The third son who had actually watched his father work over the years and had really come to understand the heart of his father and how to make wise investments. Again, his father was a stockbroker. He chose to only take out just what he needed to scrape by. And so over the course of 10 years, that money grew exponentially to nearly $1 billion. The reward that we receive from our Father is likewise going to be exponential, but it's going to be based upon how well we invest. Again, not just how much we invest, but how well we invest. Are we aiming at Christ's interests in our life or our own? Now just consider how horrible it would be if on the last day we realized that all that we had invested in our lives was consumed. That all of our life, in other words, was a waste. And that all we have is Christ. Which is great, but all of our life was wasted. Paul concludes his illustration with a warning. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So this is what Paul is talking about here. And it appears that he's referencing Amos 4.11, which is where uh, God rebukes the Israelites. And he says, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. And yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So this conveys a, a burning stick that is grabbed out of the fire before it's consumed. And you'll notice it's placed among the other sticks that are burning. That have been set apart to be destroyed by this fire. And that stick was about to be consumed with all those other sticks. And yet somebody reaches in at the last moment and plucks it out. And this parallels the warning that Christ gave when he spoke of his second coming. He says, on that day, let the one who's on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Paul's point to the Corinthians is, if they continue to squander the blessings that they have received from Christ by seeking to conform to the world around them, they are identifying themselves with the world that will be consumed. And they're eventually going to find themselves in judgment along with the world. So even though they will get preserved, even though they're not going to lose their salvation, they're in Christ. All that they have invested in will be lost. 
And so there may be an initial sense of shame when they realize that all they've invested in was worthless. But I don't believe that shame will last. Because when we stand before the judgment seat, we will be given glorified bodies. We will be resurrected at that time. And so our primary concern is not going to be any longer how great we are in comparison to other people. At that point, our great concern is going to be the glory of God and the justice of God. And when we see other believers who are rightly and justly honored for their labor and their sacrifices and their suffering for the Lord's sake, we're not going to be discouraged by that. We're going to praise God for his justice and his grace in their life. Again, because we are going to be aware that even still everything, even what we receive, even what we're rewarded for, all of it is by the grace of God. So what our brothers and sisters are rewarded for, and even what we're rewarded for, we're going to recognize it's not because of us primarily, but it's because God chose to work through us. God opened our eyes. God inspired us. God put us in situations to be used And so there will be joy in that, yes, these people are rewarded, justly rewarded for their faithfulness. We'll take great joy in it. We're not going to be discouraged at that. And at the same time, whether we suffer loss or whether we're rewarded, we too will say, praise God, he is a just God. Because he gives me exactly what I deserve. And then he gives me even what I don't deserve. Because he saved us. So, this reminded me, this whole building description reminded me of something I was reading in a biography I was reading to my boys, a biography of William Carey. I read to my my sons as we go to bed at night. And one of the things that stood out in that biography was the horrific practices that were um, performed by these um, people in India, these, these Hindus. And Carey's colleague, William Ward, noted in a study that he had made in that biography that as many as a hundred children, he estimated, were sacrificed each year to the river Ganges. Each year, a hundred children were sacrificed because many women would make vows to the Ganges River that if God would the the river god, the Ganges, if it would bless them with two children, they would give one of those children back to the river. Carey's son, William Carey Jr., witnessed one such sacrifice. He saw a boatman actually rescue a drowning child and pull it out of the river and then hand it back to its mother. And when the mother received her child, she took it, broke its neck, and threw it back into the river. And then consider the difficulty that the missionaries had when after explaining the gospel to these people who had made such horrific sacrifices, that that sacrifice that they made was utterly worthless. Imagine the difficulty they would say when they, when they asked this question, are you saying that giving up my child to this river was worthless? Really? The answer is yes. We can make incredible sacrifices. 
and those sacrifices be worthless. And whereas we can see clearly the faults of the Hindu worldview and the Hindu culture pretty clearly, we don't always see how infected we are with our American cultural values. This is what we do as Americans. We get good grades. We are good at athletics. We make lots of money and seek to be pretty. But for what end? For what end do we do all those things? How would you break the news to an American who is just being guided by American culture in their life, in all their investments, in all their sacrifices? How would you break the news to an American that all that they invested in was worthless? What would you say to the Christian who left Hinduism, the Hindu convert, who reverted back to bringing offerings to the Ganges River? You'd warn him. And you'd say, I don't, even if that is your cultural worldview, making sacrifices to this river is a waste. Don't do it anymore. You're wasting what God has given you. These incredible gifts and you're wasting it. Likewise, what would you say to the American who driven by his culture continued to offer up his gifts to the gods of the American culture? Even though all his sacrifices and work and ministry will eventually be consumed by fire and he will recognize that one day all that he has lived for was worthless. What would you say to him? If you can speak so boldly to the Hindu convert, what can you say to the Christian in America? Would you? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would guard us from wasting anything that you've given us on this empty world. Help us to see clearly, as we can see it in other cultures, cultures help us to see clearly in our own culture that we wouldn't squander these amazing resources that you've given us. Resources in your word, resources in family, resources in grace and truth, Bible church, in the friendships, in the relationships, in the security of our country, in the freedom that we're given, in the opportunities that we have that we wouldn't sell out, that none of us, as we all stand before you on that day, that, that, that we can look at one another's work getting tested by fire and stand rejoicing as we see one another's work pass through the fire and be rewarded for all that they've invested. Help us, God, to help one another make the most of our life that nothing would be wasted here on out. And give us the courage, give us the resolve to love eternity and what eternity is about 
far greater than these temporal blessings of this life. And none of that can happen, Christ, unless you do that work in our heart. Make us such loving, sacrificial, and committed Christians. We ask these things in Christ's name.